Uh, I think there are a lot of athletes that they think they are carboloiding when they are really maybe having a little bit more carbs than they normally do. And I think we need to underscore that amounts are very important, you know, and I think uh, most athletes don't realize how, how much food that actually is, uh, because I think few go to the lengths of knowing how, exactly how many grams of carbs there are in what they are actually eating. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Oh, I'm okay, thanks, Steph. Um, yeah, not, not a lot really happened since last week, except <laughs> that, you know, uh, as we mentioned last week, sort of plans are underfoot for that, um, that sodium replacement study that we mentioned, and um, I think we'll be in a position to, to start recruiting for that in the next week or so, which is fantastic mm-hmm. news. So uh, as soon as that's ready, we'll, we'll let people know about it. So if anyone's based in Melbourne and, and wants to participate, obviously we'll be uh, very happy to, to have you involved. But um, yeah, no, other than that, uh, just ticking along, um, working here and there and doing a bit of teaching, a bit of catching up on a bit of research stuff. So yeah, it hasn't, hasn't been a big week, but it's, it's good to have a quiet week every now and then. Yeah, it is. It is. Yep. Yep. How about well, you? I just found uh, I just found out. Um, was it last week? Um, uh, had a was chatting to Ricardo, and then um, initially I planned for my PhD was we'll we'll do like kind of the one main study for this year, um, and then I was chatting to him, and ideally we were hoping to do two, mm-hmm. um, and somehow I was like. Okay. Yep. We'll do two then. <laughs> so we're now doing two studies um, this year, which is really not. It's not a big um, addition to what what I'm currently doing. So um, it's just adding on to where we're looking at the impact of duration of exercise on on gut function. We're also wanting to look at the the impact of um, exercising in different environmental temperatures. Yeah. Um, the impact on gut function. So. Um, so I am also recruiting. I am owning recruiting for people to run for two hours in the heat, Alan. You are recruiting for people to run five hours in the heat. You're value for money. <laughs> Look, five hours, they're going to get, you know. Yeah. quality get, time. Exactly, exactly right. So Good training acclimation, yes, you know. Yes, yes, and, and, and they get sweat tests. Yes, this You're is not true. sweat testing them, Steph. No, we are not. No, yeah, so... Yeah, it, it really depends what they want to find out, eh? Exactly right, yeah. <laughs> or maybe I warm them up for two hours so then when they run the five hours with you, it, it really feels like a walk in the park. Well, it's like you do your half marathon before you run your marathon as yeah, your lead-in yeah. race. This is true, this is true. Yeah. This is our recruitment um, strategy now. Yes, to not injure yeah. people. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, so yeah, here at the Long Munch, um, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, usually in their training um, or after their training. Um, and what we do is we have like a part A part, um, which is like a researcher or a, or a coach, um, and we ask them a question and then we have a part B component where we have um, an athlete normally talking about their experience and some um, practical um, parts they can um, help us with. 
and uh, our podcast is on all of your popular um, podcast platforms and we are on social media, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and yeah, as always, we'd love to hear any common questions that you've got. Um, shoot them through to us on, on social media and we'll um, do our best to answer them. Um, but right now, Alan, you are looking quite stressed. Yes, well, this is uh, certainly a bugbear of mine. And I think, to, to be fair, this isn't just about me. This is probably about every person who's ever studied sports nutrition in the history of this planet has this same <laughs> bugbear, the same thing they want to get off their yep. chest, and the same thing when people describe how they carbohydrate load or perhaps mm -hmm. don't carbohydrate load, as we'll discover in a minute. Um, mm hmm said sports dietitians get back together and say, oh, don't get me started, Steph, I heard this story. And they're usually fairly much the same. So what we're talking about, obviously today our topic, it's episode 9A today, and our topic is do I really need to carb load? So we're going to talk obviously about different situations where that's um, necessary or not, uh, but talk a little bit more about, you know, how we carbohydrate load as well and what that actually means in, in practice. Um, one of the things I think everyone who's ever worked in sports nutrition uh, with any athletes that might need to, to carbohydrate load or consider doing it is they ask them, okay, what, what's your traditional approach been? You know, a day before an Ironman or an ultramarathon or, a, you know, a major cycling event or something like that. What is it that you're doing the day before? And most of them usually answer something like, oh, you know, I have a big pasta meal the night before, like I go to the, the pasta party or whatever it is. Um, mm -hmm. And that's when we we kind of, uh, yeah, don't get me started. So just to put it into context, a large pasta meal will give you probably about 80 to 100 grams of carbs if it's a big one. Um, mm -hmm. The amount of carbohydrate you need to carb load properly is probably about five to ten times that depending on the person. Uh, and, and their body mm -hmm. weight uh, and exactly how aggressively you, you want a carbohydrate load. So, um, yeah, anywhere from probably about 450, 500 grams of carbs if you're a, a pretty small um, female athlete, for example, through to possibly, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred 900 grams if you're a, a larger male athlete. Uh, and so your, your 100 gram pasta meal is not carb loading. It's not even close to carb loading. Uh, it will get you nowhere near carb loading. Um, and so we need yeah. to understand that carbohydrate loading is far more than just a big bowl of pasta the night before. Um, it is probably mm -hmm. the most common thing we ever see working with athletes in endurance sports. Uh, and it's probably the most common thing that we have to, to correct, I think. Um, you're nodding, mm -hmm. Steph, so I'm guessing you, you have a very similar experience. Mm -hmm. Very similar, yeah. Or they, you know, they love to go to the bakery and they think like going and getting a croissant or a bun or having some beers is is carb loading um yeah or a mars bar so um yeah yeah often um yeah and often even if they're not basing it on that meal um you know the night before they you know we know that when athletes do think they are successful in doing it majority you know are getting perhaps maybe half the way there for some of them that actually think they're doing it successfully mm. um so we've seen that even in the the research that we've got so 
Yeah, yeah, it is um, can be quite, and as you as they'll see, um, it can be quite difficult to um, to achieve. Yes. But there is a solution. We yep. have a plan. There is, there is, there is a plan. Yep, yep, yeah. You're looking, you're looking better now, Alan. You're looking a little bit less stressed. Yes. Well, until the next time, it happens. Yep. As I said, it happens <laughs> so so often. Roller coaster. But hopefully, ride. people listen to this podcast. It'll happen less in the future. Yeah, yeah, we hope so. And that'll make us happy dietitians. Yeah, yeah, very happy, very happy. And to help uh, answer the question and to find out more about carb loading, uh, who do we have on today? Yes, so as we said, it's it's episode 9A today. The Mm -hmm. question is, do I really need to carb load? Uh, And our guest is Dr. Jose Areta. So uh, Jose is a biologist by training, um, but he works more in sort of exercise physiology these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, as we'll hear, has, has really travelled the globe. Um, he's worked here in Australia, which is where, where we met him. Uh, he's worked over in Norway, uh, and he's, he's now based in the UK at Liverpool John Moores University, uh, where we have had previously Dr. Sam Impey did his PhD at Liverpool John Moores University. Uh, Sam was was back in episode two B two uh, A sorry. Yep. Um, but Jose is actually originally from Argentina, so uh, you, you'll see the accent there. He's clearly not Australian, mm. Norwegian, or British. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very much from from Argentina, but um, yeah, travelled the world to to sort of follow his uh, his passion in, in sport and exercise nutrition. So uh, just a, a little bit more overview. So he uh, did his PhD at, at RMIT University in um, uh, Professor John Hawley's lab, who has since moved to, to Australian Catholic University. Uh, he then worked at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences as a, a postdoctoral researcher, uh, and he now works as a lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. So he's done a whole bunch of work on a few different topics in sports nutrition. But the reason that we've got him on today is he did a really big meta-analysis, kind of a study of studies uh, on this topic of uh, carbohydrate use in um, exercise and the, the effect of, you know, carbohydrate loading will have on that as well. So uh, essentially his paper summarises uh, you know, almost half a century's worth of research on this topic um, and, and put it all together into to one paper with a whole bunch of graphs and figures and, and things which are, are really helpful and uh, you know, a lot of people really draw on that paper when they're looking at the carbohydrate needs of, of people in different exercise events and different sports. Um, so it's, it's a great piece of work he did during his time at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. Uh, and so we're going to talk to him about that today. Awesome. Awesome. That sounds good. And um, I know, yeah, a lot of listeners uh, will be dying to hear this one. Yep, mm. absolutely. So I think without further ado, Steph, we'll get into this episode in terms of do I need to carb load episode 9A of The Long Munch. Awesome. Let's do it. Jose Areta, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going over there in the UK? Are you starting to thaw out after winter yet or is it still pretty cold? Um, no, it's getting really nice and warm the days, you know, the spring is here. So we're springing back into nice uh, warm weather. Um, yeah, it's, it's been really nice this last weekend, you know, it's been like sunny Liverpool, which is unusual, but I'm really, really enjoying it despite lockdown, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, now you've you've really travelled the world as an exercise physiologist uh, and as a coach as well. Uh, originally from Argentina, you came across to Australia, and that's that's where we met back in uh, 2010. We were just saying off air at a, uh, a conference at the Australian Institute of Sport, and you were pretty much just arrived in Australia to start your PhD, and, and we met at that conference. Um, you did your PhD here. You went over to to Norway for a while to work over there in research, and now you're you're in the UK in Liverpool. So do you want to tell us a bit about that journey and and how that's all sort of worked out for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's indeed been a lot of traveling and you know it's i think it's been uh, leading to a huge personal and intellectual professional growth um you know i left my country of origin at the start to do research in this area which i i really really love and i'm a biologist by training and there's no uh, sports science degree back home in, in argentina and really all, all what been driving driving all this traveling has been the law for the, this topic and it's been driving all the all of these uh, big moves people tend to think that it's really glamorous you know to to move countries but it really li- uh, comes at a cost of leaving behind loved ones and networks of of people that are important uh, both for professional and personal life and it requires a lot of paperwork too but uh, i think it's uh yeah it's it's been really 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 good um you know, as they say, sacrifice uh, means leaving something good for something better. Uh, and I think I've been uh, extremely lucky to end up in the places that I've been working with, the people that I've been working with. So I'm very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, it's probably more so your work when you're in Norway that we're focusing on today. Um, while you were there, you did a, a big meta-analysis. Uh, we talked with, with Tim Crow in a previous episode about this concept of meta-analysis and taking all the studies on a particular topic and, and putting them all together and uh, and analysing them together. But you did that around the use of, of carbohydrate in athletes, which is really our, our topic today of, you know, do do I really need to, to carb load? So can you tell us a little bit about that study that you did in terms of what it was about and, and why you did that study? Yeah, indeed. Um, this is... Um a study about skeletal muscle glycogen use. And as you say, it's a meta-analysis that got, got published in the journal Sports Medicine in 2018. And as you said, a meta-analysis is sort of a study of studies. Uh, so we use data from other studies to try to answer a questions or a series of questions. And this one was on skeletal muscle glycogen. And first we might say, well, why is uh, muscle um, uh, skeletal sorry, skeletal glycogen uh, important. Um, well, um, skeletal muscle glycogen is important because it's a, you know internal storage of carbohydrate as fuel and it's super important for um, high intensity exercise bouts. And it can also have an, an effect in modulating or regulating the way skeletal muscles uh, cells adapt to exercise. So uh, with little muscle glycogen, you know, there seems to be an upregulation of um, pathways that utilize fat and it appears to increase the oxidative capacity of skeletal muscle as well. So basically sometimes high muscle glycogen is important for performance, but sometimes low muscle glycogen is important to to drive adaptation, it seems. Um, The way that I like to explain it is to think it as the fuel tank of a car. You know, sometimes high is good to go at full speed for long and sometimes slow, it might set an alarm that drives um, an adaptive response. Yeah. 
Um, so what we know is that muscle glycogen concentrations are very important um, and they are also very important for health, but it's, you know, as they drive like blood glucose uptake and, and blood glucose regulation, but that's probably not, not so relevant for your audience, which are probably healthy competitive athletes and that don't, don't care so much about this side of things. But, you know, this drug let lead us to think well what's what's the problem why did we do this this analysis is because uh, measuring skeletal muscle glycogen is is very difficult and we need to take uh, muscle biopsies uh, normally to measure skeletal muscle glycogen and this is quite invasive you know it means that you need to get like a some sort of anesthesia and then a little you know cut in your muscle normally the the, the quadriceps muscle we take a little bit of uh, like a, like a sample and then we have to analyze it and this takes i mean it's not only very invasive but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of uh, resources um to to do it and there's no way of non non-invasively quickly uh, measuring this there is some um ultrasound technology that supposedly that does this but i call it um it's more like an ultra noise rather than ultrasound <laughs> uh, because you really are measuring noise uh, with this uh, technology yeah. um so we really don't it's hard to predict you know how much uh, skeletal muscle glycogen we have so with this study uh, what we did is try to sort of predict uh, what uh, skeletal muscle glycogen you may have after you exercise for x amount of time at x intense x uh, intensity and to be honest with you my dream uh, was or is to be able to plug in some parameters in a bike computer which is connected to my power meter and it being able to tell me how much glycogen i have left on my on my on my legs that that's that's how this this all started you know when i was really really involved in cycling and i was during my uh, after my phd i started collecting data and it's just like um from studies in this uh, cold room in a in in a my apartment in melbourne you know and I, um, looking at studies and so on and i wanted to identify key parameters that dictated uh, skeletal muscle glycogen use and how much each of them uh, contribute to you know muscle glycogen use and create a mathematical predictive model of uh, fuel storage and use um yeah. and do you think yeah. it's going to be possible one day to to have that kind of algorithm, do you think? Do you think we're getting closer to it? Or do you think it's one of those things that there's so much biological variation that it's almost going to be impossible? No, I think uh, I think we need a lot more data. I think we need a lot more individual data to be able to do this. Um, I think we're on the early stages of being able to do it. Um, at the moment, uh, we're working with uh, some MP actually on a um, artificial intelligent algorithm to be able to or like machine learning algorithm let's call it to be able if we can increase the predictability of this model but we need to be a lot more um, precise or we need a lot more data points to be able to um, def define a more um, how to say uh, predictive better predictive model but i think uh, i think it's possible at least to some extent if we plug in the right uh, parameters and we have the right data i think it would it would be a lot more um precise in terms of, of, of predictive value we need more yep. data yeah so we need some more legs to take samples from mm -hmm. yes yeah we need uh we, we need more individual 
individuals data because a lot of the these studies report you know means of of groups so we're better at, at knowing what a uh, group of people uh, how a group of people based on certain parameters are going to report are going to uh, respond but it's a lot harder on the individual um, basis and for that we need to know the individual's characteristics and how each of them uh, um, uh, respond to this uh, or to, yeah, to the different parameters that we change in, in the system. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about sort of all this muscle glycogen use and, uh, you know, using it up through exercise and that, you know, having more glycogen is probably better from a high intensity performance point of view. Low glycogen, maybe not so good for performance, but maybe better for the, the adaptation that occurs after exercise. And that's what we talked to Sam Impey about. Uh, back in episode 2a so you can go back and uh, have a listen to that for those who are interested um from from the work that you did with that meta-analysis and looking at all the the data that is out there around carbohydrate use in athletes were there things that you felt that you learned from from that that you didn't necessarily know before or things that we know now or was it more just sort of reaffirming what we already thought from the the individual studies yeah, so uh, prior to this study, I don't think there were any sort of standard or normal uh, values for skeletal muscle glycogen or, or a really systematic summary and analysis of what's been published in the topic. So basically what we did is we summarized over 50 years of research findings in one study. And in a way, it uh, this study corrob corroborates many of the main information that was already reported from the mid-late 60s by the Scandinavian groups, you know, um, Jonas Bergström, Haltman, Saltin, Carlson, all these like big researchers uh, uh, who were pioneers in this topic. But I think it extends uh, these findings by reporting by how much each key parameter is related to uh, muscle glycogen storage and, and use. So it provides a more sort of granular and nuanced understanding of the skeletal muscle glycogen storage and dynamics, particularly for use during exercise and the effect of exercise intensity, fitness status and starting muscle glycogen that are key parameters in muscle glycogen use. Yep. Okay. So before we get into our, our topic around carb loading today, which is obviously is, you know, under what circumstances do we need to, you know, maximize that, that glycogen store or, or tank, if you like, um, you mentioned there those different parameters that, that influence how quickly or how much glycogen that we use up. So we've got exercise intensity, we've got how long the exercise is, the fitness status. What were the you know, roughly or the brief findings from that in terms of which, which of those parameters are important and in, in what ways? Well, the main parameters that affect muscle glycogen utilization are, as you said, exercise intensity, duration, fitness status, and starting uh, skeletal muscle glycogen. Um, by far, you know, the single most... Um, the thing is that these, these parameters sort of interact in a way. You know, you say like, oh, yeah, it's going, going for, uh, for long at high intensity is going to decrease muscle glycogen the most or the quickest. The thing is that if you go at really high intensity, you cannot go for, for very long. Um, so um, when I was going through this data, it, get, it came really clear to me that one of the um, best ways to deplete, uh, really deplete muscle glycogen is um, to stick to intensities that are very muscle glycogen dependent, but you can also um, uh, 
you uh, like go for for longer so you don't fatigue because of the intensity is so long but you can uh, keep exercising so you use that muscle glycogen which you know seems to be somewhere around like 70 75 percent of vo2 max is a very uh, glycogen dependent kind of intensity depends on your fitness status as well and you know one of the problems is that we tend to report fitness status relative to vo2 vo2 max um and you know some people that are like very trained you know if you get like a, a top ironman athlete and you tell them to go at 70 75% of vo2 max they can go stay at the, that intensity for forever but then mm. if when you report it to uh, relative to their uh, lactate threshold is a different story so uh, we tend to report things relative to to vo2 max but it's maybe um, not the best way to go but ev every every study is reporting uh, vo2 max as an intensity that's that's why we focus on that parameter mm. but going back to your question so we know that exercise intensity is it is very important uh, so the, the higher you you go that's really going to increase the amount of muscle glycogen uh, you you use and the fitness status um, in terms of you know your vo2 max has some effect but it's not as big as the exercise intensity um, and the start muscle glycogen is a big one because the more muscle glycogen you start your exercise uh, with the more you seem to to use yep so you actually use it up quicker if you have more to begin with yes yes so yep. the rate of decrease is a lot higher if you start with more muscle glycogen yep yeah cool so most runners, cyclists and triathletes would all be familiar with the term carb loading, um, although the definition of carb loading is probably different. Um, but both research and experience suggest that, yeah, many don't actually really understand what it is. So can you describe what carb loading actually is um, to our listeners? Of course, um, the, I think the reason why um, a lot of people don't fully understand it is because the, the term and definition can be rather vague, really. Um, I think to better understand what it is that we need to go uh, back in time to the first study uh, or the first time that muscle glycogen supercompensation was reported. And here I'm talking uh, of a new term, which is muscle glycogen supercompensation. So the objective of carb loading is to achieve muscle glycogen supercompensation, which is an increase of skeletal muscle glycogen levels above the sort of the normal re resting state. And we, we really, I love to go back in time and say, okay, what's, who's the first one that reported this? Because this is this sort of the origin of, of it all. And to look at this, we'd have to go back to a study that was published in the journal Nature, which is a very prestigious uh, journal for scientists in general, but for life scientists um, in particular. Um, this study was published in 1966 by, by two uh, pioneers in this topic, which were like Jonas uh, uh, Bergström and Eric Haldman. So the muscle biopsy uh, needles that we use are called like the Bergström needles, thanks to this guy. Um, so these guys show that um, they, they, they had this model that they show when they were exercising with one leg to fatigue, you know, one of the, uh, the, the, the skeletal muscle glycogen in that leg went pretty much close to, to, to zero. So it got like they use all the, the muscle glycogen on that on that leg. And then following a uh, diet high in carbohydrates, they show that the, 
the mass of glycogen in that leg went from like close to zero to close to four percent so for four grams uh to um, four grams of, of carbohydrates of glycogen per, per hundred grams of, of muscle, right? And this was twice as much as what the other leg was holding, which was around 2%. So the, the amount of muscle glycogen in the other leg didn't, didn't change. So that is a 100% increase, so increase in muscle glycogen by depleting muscle glycogen and incre increasing, you know, the, the amount of, of carbohydrate in the, in the diet. So um, that's what people originally think as, um, as, as carb loading. So provi providing a lot of carbohydrates to replenish and increase the amount of uh, muscle glycogen. Of course, these were not uh, um, trained uh, athletes and participants through time. We, un we understand this pro process uh, a little bit uh, better. Today, we understand that, you know, eating or we know that eating around 10 to 12 grams of um, carbohydrates per kilo of body weight per day for about 24 hours while minimizing the amount of exercise, it can lead to skeletal muscle glycogen above normal levels. So let's say if you are a 75 kilo athlete, you'd be having around 75, uh, 750 grams of carbohydrates in one day to um, increase the skeletal muscle glycogen, which doesn't mean necessarily it's going to duplicate as they showed in that first study, but it's going to increase it above the, um, the, the resting values. But that is a lot of food. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not um, often what some people do is they think it's going to the bakery and getting some you know pies and pasties and buns and um or just eating you know a certain amount of carbohydrate the, the night before <clears throat> rather than doing it for the extended yeah, day exactly exactly yeah I think there are a lot of athletes that they think they are carboloiding when they are really maybe having a little bit more carbs than they normally do. And I think we need to mm -hmm. underscore that amounts are very important, you know, and I think uh, most yep. athletes don't realize how, how much food that actually is. Um, because I think few go to the lengths of knowing how, exactly how many grams of carbs they are in what they are actually eating. Um, in fact, there are several studies showing that the majority of the athletes fail to reach the recommendations for uh, carb loading pr prior to an event uh, or competition. Mm. Yeah, and it's certainly something, and Steph, you'll probably agree with me, and, and Jose as well, because you're, you're a coach as well as a scientist. You know, when you explain to people what it actually translates to in terms of food, they're genuinely shocked. They have no idea how much food it actually is. And, you know, as you said, Steph, a lot of people think that carb loading is having the, the big pasta meal the night before a race. Um, and then you look at how much carbohydrate they're getting from that. It might be 80 or 100 grams of carbs. And as you said, Jose, they might be aiming for 750. And they've, they've just eaten. They, so that one carb loading meal has got them, you know, less than a seventh of what they actually need. Yeah, 100%. And that's, that's yeah. in, the, in the best of cases because a lot of the time it's not what people think. Like, it's not chocolate, mm. you know? They <laughs> say, so like, people are like, okay, now we're going to mm. carb load. Oh, yeah. great, I can have all this chocolate. It's like, well, no, not really, <laughs> you know, because it's like this idea, oh, it's sweet. Yeah. There's a lot of, of, <laughs> of carbs there. Well, no, no, there's a lot of fat there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and you, you've done a lot of riding yourself um, as well as we've mentioned you, you coach plenty of cyclists. Um, so can you describe perhaps what a day's eating might look like if you are carb loading? So whether that be you or for a cyclist that you're coaching, um, what, what does that kind of look like in, I guess, in food examples so athletes can get a bit of yeah, a picture? Yeah, of course, of course. So... Uh, as an overall message, it's, it's important to make se- uh, the selections low, low fat. You know, I'm not. Uh, um, mm. It's not because I, there's there's nothing bad about fat itself, uh, but it makes foods uh, mm. energy very energy dense. And this, uh, when you're carb loading, it's already got a lot of lot of energy. Um, for example, mm. in, a, in a plan for a carb lo- loading for someone who is like around 75 kilos, as I was saying before. Um, carb loading already is going to have like over 3000 uh, calories and if you're doing it properly it's already very low in fat so as i was saying before for a 75 kilo person we are going to be aiming at around 10 grams per kilo for for around 24 hours you can go for a bit longer if you want to make sure um but to give you an example if you if we break down the day in like breakfast lunch dinner and snacks you know, breakfast would start with around like two big cereal bowls of around, you know, 180 grams of, of uh, cereal, let's say like cornflakes or something similar. And then you will have like a, um, around 300 meals of milk, one medium slice of white bread, a serving of uh, jam and marmalade. You know, that's going to be around 200 grams of carbs just for breakfast. And that's, you know, two, two big cereal bowls is not big something bowls. that, you know, people are normally having for for breakfast uh, then for lunch you would go into like uh, big portions of of rice so uh, almost full two regular plates of of uh, white rice um you can of course have some low fat sauces and a little bit of oil it's okay um then you will have a little bit of like fruit juice you know like fruit juice or any any uh, drinks for that matter probably is the easiest way to inc- increase the the carb uh, intake just like normally very high sugar uh, high carbohydrate you know drinks normally around 10 percent carbs these drinks and you know then we'll have a little bit of uh, low fat dessert as well you can get like a little fat <laughs> free ice cream you know three scoops of ice cream to sneak in some carbs there as well that's a like a good trick adding a little bit of a nice dessert um and then you know throughout the day you might have like a banana like low fat energy bar or something like that to top up around like 40 50 grams of, of carbs during the day and then dinner again you go you know pasta two big portions of pasta again similar full size regular um uh, sorry, full regular size plates, uh, some low fat sauces and a little oil or parmesan cheese, whatever you like on top, it's fine. And then um, fruit juice again. And, and now then for dessert, the nice little bowl of creamed rice or something like that. So you see like it's it's quite a lot of food. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot more than what people <clears throat> think carb loading is. Yeah, you know, because yep. um, carbohydrate foods tend to be bulky because of the of the nature of of, uh, of carbs. We we tend to select things that are relatively low in low in fiber to decrease as well the bulk, and this is important to remind people that 
what we do for carb loading is not necessarily what we are recommending them for like their everyday, you know, meals. It's like, okay, <laughs> I remember, you know, working with a cycling team and telling them, okay, you like go like Coca Pops and this and that. And it's like, are we getting all this sugar? And it's like, yeah, look, yeah. it's it's fine. Like, uh, if if you understand metabolism and exercise um, physiology and exercise metabolism, you know, I can tell you, you're on on that five minute climb that you you're gonna go up. You're gonna you're gonna burn like that banana and and a, and a half that you're gonna eat in just five minutes. You know, you're gonna be using six grams yeah. per. Um, per minute of carbohydrates, easy. So when you understand the amounts that you're, that you're using uh, on high intensity exercise, it, it brings to, to, to life to understand, well, yes, it, they are a lot of carbs, but they're also using this energy a lot. Yep. And I think, yeah, that's definitely something that we both get from, from athletes um, and individuals is they are just so shocked. They're like, what? You're telling me to eat all this sugar. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's such a shock to them um, because obviously they are generally eating pretty, you know, pretty healthy and, and wholesome food. So it, I, I find it, um, yeah, that I always have to um, do a really good job of, of explaining that we're not doing this every day. Um, and, you know, the aim of it is because of, blah which you've explained um but yeah and and giving that example like you did you know you burn that up when you're high intensity and you're going up this climb you burn this amount up etc and to try and achieve it through wholesome whole grain foods not only is really difficult with bulk but from my perspective looking at gut issues as well we potentially also increase the risk of um athletes experiencing gut issues too so <clears throat> yeah you really have to explain it yeah i i, I think you know uh, we have we have to kind of fight a little bit of this uh car phobia yes that there's uh go going around that it's you know you have to say like yeah it's it's okay you know mm -hmm. and you know sometimes it's okay to do a five hour ride on with just water mm -hmm. um and sometimes we need to do this and eat, eating all this sugar is, is yep. part of what you need to to fuel the effort that you're gonna have ahead yeah yeah absolutely and one of the things that, that i often speaking to people about is that that bulk the volume of food uh is just is you know as you said steph it's almost impossible to get it in if you're trying to get it in um and we were talking with um i think it was with anico in the last podcast yeah. about this as well um that you know if you're trying to take in that volume of food it's just almost impossible it just feels like you're pouring concrete into your stomach all day uh, mm. and it's just really uncomfortable and uh, carb loading doesn't have to be like that um, it often is for a lot of people. That's a pretty common experience. But uh, with with clever food choices, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Um, and, and you know, as you said, the other thing uh, reminds me of the the podcast we did with Dr. Tim Crow about why nutrition is so confusing and the the confusion between messages around health and messages around sports performance. And you know, that the two kind of merge together in a way that kind of confuses things. And people think, oh, my God, I'm having sugar and, you know, refined starchy things. I'm going to die of diabetes next week. <laughs> and it's like, well, for a start, you're an athlete. You're at very low risk of those things in the first place for most people. We'll talk about the exceptions a little bit later on. Um, secondly, it's only one, you know, if you're doing an Ironman, it might only be one or two days a year that you eat like this and in that quantity. Um, thirdly, as, as Jose said, you're going to use it all up 
the next day. It's not like it's, you know, sitting around gathering dust in, in your body. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, it's taking that public health message, which is designed for middle-aged sedentary people who are not doing any exercise, and confusing it with recommendations for athletes who are doing hours and hours and hours of exercise. It's, you know, completely different kettle of fish. All right, well, let's talk a bit more now, Jose, about uh, whether we do need to carb load and in what situations that might be useful. Um, so we've talked about, I guess, what carb loading is, you know, super compensating that glycogen, getting the, the levels of glycogen, the, the stored carbohydrate, greater than they are at normally, you know, day-to-day -day at rest. Um, so what sort of events in terms of distances, in terms of whether you're an elite athlete versus a recreational athlete who's just going out there to, to finish an event, what scenarios do you feel it's it's important to think about carb loading or where it might be beneficial for us? Yeah, well, first I think it's important to consider what is the aim to carb load. Um, you know, and this is to provide fuel to go hard for longer, basically. Uh, this means that, you know, the it theoretically allows to delay the onset of fatigue by delaying the depletion of a key fuel source for high intensity exercise. So carb loading does not allow you to achieve high power output over short durations. Yeah, this is very important for you to know. It's not that by having a lot of carbs, you're going to be able to uh, pump out a better, you know, five minute power or like better, like one, one kilometer um, effort or something like that. It just allows you for the fatigue to to, to come la later sort of thing. Mm. And it seems that, you know, uh, with a normal high carbohydrate diet or a normal, you know, mixed diet, let's say, it takes about 90 minutes until you begin to see the, the fatigue uh, driven by uh, skeletal muscle glycogen depletion, depletion in an effort that is an all-out effort. We're talking about a race here. Mm. So events that are around 90 minutes or more in dur duration may benefit of increased uh, skeletal muscle glycogen uh, supercompensation. Um, and which athletes it would be useful for? Well, I would say it's useful for competitive athletes. I believe the higher the level, the most important it might become. Um, I would definitely not emphasize this practice on a beginner or someone who uh, has other priority areas to focus on their nutrition or other practices during competition. Not, not because it's, uh, you know, it's going to be of is going to be negative or, or anything like that. But there's probably other areas, you know, that come before this uh, to, to focus on other than, you know, focusing on eating a lot of carbs pri prior to a competition. Yeah. Yeah. And so for those longer events, uh, obviously, you know, as you said, it's that sort of delaying fatigue, um, being able to use that carbohydrate or have more available to the the muscle over a longer period of time and, and obviously you can top that up during exercise by having your know, gels or drinks or bars or food you know bananas or whatever it is that you, that you like to have during during your exercise um what about when you start to get sort of beyond that two three four five hours you start to get to the really long stuff like the ultra endurance say 10 hours plus of exercise obviously um you know, you're going at a slower pace because you can't maintain that pace for so long. Um, so the amount of carbohydrate per minute or per hour that you use is is going to be lower. Um, potentially the opportunities to consume carbohydrate are going to be 
better because you're not going at quite that same pace as you would say in a marathon. Um, do you feel that there comes to a point where you sort of go out the other side and actually carbohydrate no loading no longer becomes necessary or do you feel it's still necessary even in those really long but sort of lower intensity events? Where, where do you kind of feel that we're sitting at for those sorts of events? So like your 100 mile ultra marathons, your Ironmans, your 24 hour mountain bike events, that kind of thing. Yeah, you're throwing me a curved ball here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really don't think there's enough evidence out there to be able to say that one thing is better than the other. Um, I think, you know, I can um, sort of think out loud and tell you what I what I think about this, right? And then say like, oh, there is this evidence that, you know, carb loading is uh, good or not for, you know, ultra marathons or like very long run running events. Um, as you were uh, alluding to the fact that, you know, in these events, you start off with a lower intensity already because it is um, so long. Um, I think there might be a chance that this can, uh, delay the onset of a decrease in um, uh, exercise intensity. Of course, the longer the exercise, we know that the more important that during exercise, exogenous carbohydrates uh, be become important, the more your muscles rely on ingested uh, carbohydrates for the longer the, the, the duration goes for. So. In that, in that case, I would probably work with my athlete not only in carb uh, loading, but also making sure that they can deal with high amounts of carbohydrates during a, a prolonged duration. And this you guys know a lot better than I do, the effect that it might potentially have in, on, their, on their gut. I think, you know, from talking to a few um, ultra uh, endurance athletes, um, that's that's probably the great limiting step, you know, when they have to spend all these hours uh, eating. Uh, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't discard at all the um, muscle glycogen uh, super compensation or carb loading practice for for one of these athletes, even though. We don't have the evidence that it actually improves performance uh, for these sort of like super long events. Um, I would uh, say I'd rather be uh, uh, better safe than, than sorry, yeah. let's say. And I, I, I would think that it's not really uh, impaired performance. And this is something very, very important to think as well when we think about the interventions that we might work with our athletes is um, see if there's any chance of it being ergolytic um, and I, I, uh, we can go a little bit more into detail um, later on about when um, carb loading might be ergolytic, but in most uh, opportunities, I think it would not be. Yeah. So when you say ergolytic, it's essentially making performance worse. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Sorry. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay. So yeah, I think that's a really good point, and that we just don't have the the research evidence for those sort of longer durations and and i think to a large degree i mean that's the the whole challenge with um sports nutrition in ultra endurance exercise is it's almost impossible to to do a, a study like that because 
um, you know, who's going to come in on a, a bike or a treadmill and give a competitive effort for 10 or 15 hours in a lab, right? Like, that's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, people, totally. people, <laughs> people do three or you might get people just plodding along for five and then do a, you know, throw in a time trial after five hours. That's been done, I think, once or twice. But that's about the, the longest duration we have. And so most of the yep. research that's done in that kind of ultra-endurance space is either, you know, extrapolated from research of you know two or three hours duration and kind of said well if it works for three it's going to work for 13 or it's people turning up with a clipboard a set of scales and maybe a needle to take some blood at an actual event itself um to to observe things but you can't really um intervene so much in a competition scenario and even if you do it's like well there's so many other things going on you know triathlon well you muck up a transition that just screws up all your data completely um you know, you have a flat tire or whatever on your bike. And, and so there's all this stuff going on in, in the real world that, that makes it almost impossible there as well. So, uh, yeah, it's a really, really tough area of, of research to look at performance in ultra-endurance stuff. We can kind of observe stuff. That's not perfect. We can do shorter stuff in the lab, and that's not perfect either. Um, but what we'd really love to be able to do is, yeah, not really possible, unfortunately. Um in terms of uh, carb loading and performance, uh, obviously we said you know there's not much uh, evidence in the ultra endurance space, but for for shorter durations of exercise, you know maybe two, three, four hours, do we do you feel like there's robust scientific evidence to support the practice of carb loading? Is it something that that science sort of backs up beyond sort of a theoretical you know more glycogen equals better and this equals more glycogen, therefore it is better, but is there evidence that if we do carb load people they will perform better yeah yeah um well i think it's important to start thinking you know so start answering the question by asking another question which is uh, mm -hmm. what is performance you mm -hmm. know in the in the lab we normally have like different types of tests we have tests tests that are uh, time to fatigue and tests that are a completion of a distance you know mm -hmm. and i think both models apply to the ultra endurance uh, world I think there is this race, I think it's in the US, I can't remember the name, that is like a backyard run or something like that for, for ultra runners that I think they have to cover like a 5k um, lap uh, as, as many times as they oh, can. Oh, like last man standing their... or something? Something like that, but it's insane, yeah. you know, they just yeah. run until the last man, yeah, yeah last man standing. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of those, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's that's effectively, at, in a way, it's kind of a time to fatigue, you know, it's who, la mm. who lasts for longer. So I think you have this model in the, in the ultra runner world. And even in professional cycling, you see that kind of, you know, upper climb, that sort of thing. It's kind of everyone goes at a particular pace and you just see who cracks and who's left. It's almost a bit of a yeah. time to fatigue yeah, test 100%. as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they're, they're covering a distance, but at one point is who can hold that pace and is mm. that is a time to fatigue. So it's a model that we thought, it, you know, it was not really ecologically valid. But then when you look at um, in detail, you realize that, well, there's actually a lot of time to fatigue in different type, type of events. But there is plenty of evidence that, it, let's say, there is a direct relationship between the skeletal muscle glycogen and the time to fatigue. Right. Like it seems that um, increasing skeletal muscle glycogen above normal levels, it can increase time to fatigue by about, you know, 20 to 30 percent, which sounds like a lot. But there's a huge variation as well. Mm -hmm. You know, some people might, you know, depending on the day and how they are feeling and so on, it might have a bigger effect than others. Whereas 
in, in completion to to or, or yeah completion of distance or a time trial sort of effort the the increase in performance is around like one to three percent you know it's a lot it's a lot lower but a lot more more consistent so yes there, there is a lot of evidence uh, supporting this uh, contrary to what you were asking for these like super long events and so on the for shorter events this has been like thoroughly researched really there's been um, you know, if we go back in time to one of the first scientific studies that is, is probably the main study that uh, set sports nutrition and, as, a, um, as an area of, of research was this study published in 1967, again with uh, Jonas Bergström uh, as the first author. And they showed that with a high carbohydrate diet, you know, increasing muscle glycogen by again twofold. Uh, it would increase time to fatigue by around 50% when exercising at around 70 to 75% of VO2 max. And this was the intensity that I was telling you that is intensity that you can maintain for a long time, but it's really sort of muscle glycogen dependent yep. uh, sort of intensity. Mm. But then when we go back to the classics, and I'm just going back to these classic studies because then these um, research findings have really been corroborated, but these were the first studies that, you know, show this. This was this study by um, Carlson and, and Saltine in the Journal of Applied Physiology in 1971 that they show that when they increased uh, carbohydrate in the diet and incre increased muscle glycogen by twofold from normal values, then they would see an increase in performance in about 5% in a two-hour running race. Um, yeah, and again, there's been like a lot of studies co corroborating or, or at least replicating these these findings in in different settings. So yeah, there's a lot of evidence for this. Yeah. Okay. Um, a couple of questions on on that kind of research. Do, do any of those studies feed carbohydrate during the exercise, or are they just given water throughout? Like, would, do you think yeah. that would change the outcome? Yeah, definitely. Um, some of the studies did and some of the studies uh, didn't. Um, I think it, it would have a, an effect more considering that, you know, maintain, maintaining glycemia is, is very important. Glycemia is the amount of circulating uh, blood, blood glucose that, that you have on your, um, that, you know, that is very important to feed the brain, not only mm -hmm. the muscles, but the brain. So when the blood glucose go, goes down, your brains go like, uh, we need to stop, you know, you cannot keep exercising. That's that hitting so that's the wall definite... or hunger flooding kind of feeling that people can get. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, yes, this, this, this will have an effect. So, uh, muscle glycogen supercompensation on its own, let's say, um, it's not enough because what you run out of, um, you know, uh, you can run out of earlier. Also depends whether if you had a pre-exercise meal or not, uh, is the liver uh, glycogen that maintains this, this glycemia. So whether you're feeding or not, it's definitely going to uh, have an effect on how you're going to perform uh, on the day. This can have a huge, huge difference. Yeah. Mm. But but even if you do feed on the day, the, the super compensation, the, the carb loading is still beneficial. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, there's, uh, this is kind of the devil's advocate question, but there's been, I know, a couple of studies, because most of these studies, like you're feeding people, obviously, a bucket load of carbohydrate or you're not um, in a lot of these studies. So it's pretty easy to know whether you, you're on the carb loading trial or the, the non-carb loading trial. And we talked to Lewis James about this in an episode around hydration and uh, the issue of, of blinding research and, and whether you know which, um, which trial you're in. So 
I think there's only been maybe one or two studies that have looked at uh, trying to placebo control the carb loading. So basically they're able to feed people in a way that they don't know whether they're on the carb loading diet or the non-carb loading diet. And interestingly, in those studies, they don't seem to show much benefit. Do you want to, you got any comments around those? I know some of those study designs are a bit unusual as well, but um, any thoughts around that? Yeah, I've got many thoughts around this, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh... The, the mind is incredibly, incredibly powerful and, you know, placebo controlled trials are the standard uh, to test the effect of any interventions in medicine, um, especially the, to test the effect of drugs. Um, we also use it, you know, in studies on ergogenic aids and, and performance. And many studies shows that if you give someone a placebo, which is effectively an inert uh, treatment, yeah, I mean, effectively because there's no physiological effect, uh, if people believe they will, it will have an effect, it will have an effect. Um, it's uh, really interesting to see that, you know, despite the fact that we know placebo can have this strong effect, that the overwhelming majority of the studies testing the effect of carb loading uh, have not done placebo-controlled trials, making it hard to differentiate between a, you know, a belief effect or a treatment effect, because maybe both the researchers and the um, athletes were already thinking that it was going to have a positive effect and you go like yeah of course yeah, it's going to have at least a little bit of a positive effect and interestingly um, enough uh, the improvement in performance of around you know one to three percent that we see with a uh, carb loading is around the same percentage percentage improvement that you would see if you give someone a placebo treatment which is around one to three percent um so by this uh by no means i'm saying that we should discard um carb loading as a practice that is useless because you know it's just in people's minds i'm not saying that at all there's very strong evidence showing that there is a, a physiological you know metabolic rationale because of doing it but i think this is something that we gotta keep in mind the two studies that you are talking about is uh, one um, published in the year 2000 in the Journal of Applied Physiology with Louise Berg as the first author. Uh, Tim Noakes was the last author. And then the other study is um, one published in uh, MSSE, Medicine and Science uh, in Sport and Exercise, in 2018 with the first author, uh, Kristen Tomsik. And Louise Berg was leading this study as a senior author. Um, I was just a participant in the study as a cyclist. And they there both were, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was also in the, my moment of existential angst after my, my PhD. I had a lot of time <laughs> on my hands. So I was uh, driving all the way from Melbourne to, to Canberra <laughs> just, to, just to be a participant in that study. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> uh, so, so firstly, how good was the placebo control? Could you tell which, which one was which? I, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, really. Um, they they did a really good job. And I think most of the carbs were hidden in some sort of like a, a jelly that you, we were having. Mm. You know, there was like a um, this jelly that we have for dessert. And you couldn't really tell if, the, if it was, um, you know, if it had carbs or not, mm -hmm. really. 
Uh, I don't know if they were adding um, maltodextrin or what they were adding to it, but I think the majority of the carbs were hidden in, or a good part of them were, were hidden in that in that uh, dessert and jelly. Then that shows you how you can, you know, hide a lot of carbs in these sort of more like solutions kind of thing of mm. the things that that, that we eat. Uh, I I could I don't think I could I could tell the the, the difference. Um, but yeah, both in both uh, of these studies, um, there was a, a small increase of around 20% of uh, pre-exercise skeletal muscle glycogen. So not twice as much, you know, as these like class classical studies. And the levels were not, you know, reported like to be su super high in the in the high carbohydrate group in the in the carbo-loading uh, group. Um, so you know, we like to refer to these in like millimoles per kilo of um, of, of uh, muscle mass, of dry muscle mass. And these reach around between 600 and um, 700. You know, normal is around five, 600 for a, for a, tra for a trained athlete. Uh, and in this case, it was around, yeah, 600 to 725 or something on average. So they were not super high. Um, but, you know, in this, in these studies, carb loading where it was uh, blinded, it had no effect on, on performance in tests lasting for around two and a half hours or, or more. Uh, however, which, and this is very important, in the study published in the year 2000, they, show, they showed an improvement in power output in a, a one-minute one sprint at the end of a, what was a 100-kilometer sort of um, time trial kind of thing. It was, as you were saying, the, mo the model for these um, studies is quite, it's quite peculiar, trying to replicate some of the dynamics of, of cycling, you know, with these changes of paces and so on. And so this has this like four kilometer and one kilometer efforts in between. And it finished with a one, one kilometer sprint, uh, I believe. And in the high carb group, um, the carb loading group, in that first study, they show that at the end they could go harder. And this is extremely important for performance, you know, because this is when races are defined. You know, these changes of paces, you see it uh, also in ultra endurance races, you know, when you're getting close to the finish line, uh, pick the pace up and then who can, you know, make it quicker to the, to the finish line. Really, this defines the, the, the outcome of a race a lot of time. So there's definitely a lot of more uh, work to be done in this era with, with blinded studies. I think this is a huge gap in a very important or very researched uh, topic. There's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the final question around, I guess, the, the, the evidence on carb loading and, and where it's beneficial or not, and we sort of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but are there any athletes or, or groups of athletes or people that you would specifically caution against carb loading because it might be detrimental either from performance but possibly also from a health point of view? Yeah, well, uh, first I would be selective who I recommended to uh, following the the, the, the guidelines above, you know, what I was mentioning before uh, in terms of like, well, you know, what sort of type, you know, how long you're going to be exercising for, how, how trained you are, how long you've been in the sport for, what other more basic elements of your sport nutrition you're taking care of. Uh, or not, um, I would definitely not recommend it to someone with uh, type 2 di diabetes uh, to start with, but I'd say that most competitive or performance endurance athletes, uh, chances of having type 2 diabetes is, is, is very, very, very low. Um, so for someone with type 2 diabetes, I would probably um, 
do other things that they can increase their 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 performance by a bigger margin that than carb, carb loading so you know the, the margin by which this is going to increase performance is is relatively low compared to other things that you might need to do yeah uh, but other than that you know i wouldn't I cannot think of uh, any particular reason to um, caution someone against uh, doing carb loading, uh, except if they report any sort of gut issues. On, but just most comes down not to the carb loading itself, but more like the selections of foods and uh, food intolerances and allergies and, and so on. But it's not the, the effect of carb loading itself. Okay. Um, and just finally, uh, around, I guess, the, the process of, of carbohydrate loading, um, there's been obviously a few different versions over the years, and you talked about some of those early studies in the 60s and 70s that uh, I guess by the time that came to the real world of sport, probably you know later on in the 70s and into the 80s, people were doing these big depletion, you know, going on these really low-carb diets and flogging themselves in training and then having this massive carbohydrate load to get that super compensation. And that's that approach has kind of changed over the years. We tend not to do the the low carb uh, depletion part of it. Um, there is one study, I think, in two thousand and two, that actually suggested it was from the Western Australian Institute of Sport, suggested that um, you know a single day, so twenty four hours of, of eating that sort of volume of carbohydrate, would be enough to sort of super compensate the muscle. And um, you know, going for an additional two days on top of that didn't give any extra benefit i'm not sure i haven't seen anything sort of replicating that it's like a single study that sort of sits there um any thoughts on that in terms of how long you would suggest people eat that high carbohydrate quantity before a race do you go for 24 hours 36 hours 48 what's your general approach in practice yeah well um look uh, alluding to the you know different models as you were saying <laughs> there were these you know the classic uh, carb loading that was developed in the 60s where it was like train hard three days of low carbohydrate high fat diet then decrease the training load for three days high carbohydrate then you have the modified 80s training you know first study showing that was yeah from Dave Costil's group um, you know you keep your diet the same uh, for a few days prior to the to the um, competition then three days before that you increase high carbohydrate again, eight to ten, you know, eight to twelve grams per kilo of body mass, um, and that leads to, to 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 the race. And then we have this sort of this current model that you're you're mentioning that goes for around, you know, twenty four to to forty eight hours um, of low um, amount of training and high carbohydrate intake. Um, I believe that around you know 24 to 48 hours is the the right amount um, as long as the tra training load is is low and this is very important to consider because um, I like to talk more about carbohydrate availability so it's the the carbohydrate available of what you'd ingested after you subtract the carbohydrates that you use for for the exercise bout. So if you think that, you know, 24 hours might be enough, then you have to really keep an eye on how much you're, you're, you're training for. And you, we know most athletes get this fear of um, losing their fitness because they are not training for a day. So they're probably uh, prior to their big competition, they're still going, you know, sneaking in this like uh, training here and there. So I think you want to keep in mind how, how much of that they are doing and the timing around the exercise as well. 
uh, when when they are eating so this might have an effect but yeah i believe like um around 24 hours and tr between 24 and 48 hours of uh, going hard on the carb intake is definitely gonna be enough yeah um, i think it's a different story when we're talking about repeated uh, super compensation and this is a different story we could probably have a um, yeah, long chat about this <laughs> yes um, but again this is a topic in which there is not a lot of research and you know we know there's uh, a lot of competitions that happen throughout you know consecutive days um, and we don't really know the capacity of uh, bringing up the muscle glycogen from very low levels to high uh, levels uh, repeatedly yeah. over consecutive days so this is something that would be nice to do more work on we know that if we give enough time between repeated you know depletion days then yes it's possible to super compensate but uh um i i worked together with uh tom doring uh, vernon coffee and 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 greg cox on a study we got published la last year and we showed you know that we, we were able to like super compensate people um with a uh, five days in between you know efforts but we don't really know what happens when you know we shorten the time to like 24 hours or something like that so effectively for you know two of the france uh, athletes and so so on like we don't really know what's happening with their muscle glycogen and day to day yeah okay and there's some sorry there's no um added benefit of actually doing like previous where they depleted like, so they depleted them and then they increased their carbohydrate. Is there, there's no actual benefit in doing that depletion phase to, to optimize the carb loading? No. No. Yeah. Because I know there's <laughs> Unless athletes you like suffering. That that, yeah, I know there's athletes that still kind of look at that, the older school method. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's why I just wanted to add that in. Yeah. So keep it yeah. back in the 80s where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, I think that's pretty much it in terms of the, the, the practical stuff around carb loading. Um, any other sort of final tips? I mean, I think that the, the important thing you said there, Jose, and I'm sure you tear your hair out as a coach with this is tapering, like people actually doing the taper yeah. that their co coach asked them to do um, in terms of the lead up to, to an event. Um, but anything else, uh, other tips or strategies that you might suggest to help athletes that are carb loading? Um, well, I think we went through all the main things. Um, I think you would be really focusing on amounts are really important. You know, just know um, know how many grams of, of carbs there is in what you're eating. So you have like a, a daily carb uh, budget, you know, mm -hmm. and you got to go through it. And you say like, or more than budget, like target, let's say. And you go like, okay, I'm eating this a low fat pastry that has like 50 grams and this adds to my daily budget of uh, of carbs so you need to know the target and then how much of each food adds to to that target i think that's probably the easiest uh, way to go um and of course when you do this you need to focus on carbohydrate dense and uh, low fat foods um, the, which not, shouldn't necessarily look like your everyday uh, meals of a more wholesome, you know, high fiber, 
a nutrient-rich uh, diet that you probably want for your everyday. This is more like go hard on the cars more than anything. Um, of course, test uh, before an important competition. Don't try to do this um, before um, an important competition if you haven't tested it before. This probably applies for any sort of recommendation that you would give for any um, uh, sports nutrition practice. Um, and yeah, avoid any sources of carbohydrates that you know that might have a uh, any negative effect on how you feel. You know, we know some people have uh, degrees of like uh, food, different degrees of food intolerances. And, you know, if uh, you don't like um, or something, you know, you, you eat oats and oats are, don't seed you well. So avoid that type of food and try to go with someone with some other food that, you know, it's, it's better for you and your gut sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, one one other question. I don't think we answered it. Um, do do we know the difference in, um, I guess, benefit between the genders? So, is do we know if carb loading is, you know, beneficial both for males and for females, or is majority of research um, being done in in males? Yeah, unfortunately, the vast majority of uh, research in sports science and sports nutrition in general has been done in, in males. So there's, yeah. uh, you're probably very aware that there's, um, it's very un unequal in that yeah. sense. And uh, there mm -hmm. is some research on, on females. Um, some research shows that, or not show really, but report that females might not be able to super compensate. Um, as uh, males but really this research uh, was not feeding the females uh, as much yep. carbohydrates as other research so when you yep. uh, look at the research um, sort of longitudinally or when you like sorry not uh, sort of cross-sectionally um, look at different studies and how much carbohydrates they are providing per kilo of body mass and how much uh, muscle glycogen uh, females achieve. It seems that they are uh, as capable as, as men of uh, increasing skeletal muscle glycogen. In terms of their improvement for performance, the, the studies are so little. I think it's like just like a handful of studies looking into this that it's hard to draw conclusions but the findings seem to be very similar so far to what the research on males has shown. So there's no reasons to believe that the findings that uh, there are for men out there do not apply to, to females, though we need more research on it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And I know that that will be a question we get if we, do, if we don't answer that. So I thought I needed to add that. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So I'm going to hand over to Steph now. And she's going to take us through the bonus round to finish off. Yeah, these are, these are fun questions. Um, so our listeners can get to know you a bit more. Um, so if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, although it sounds like you absolutely love what you're doing and you travel, you know, you've traveled to a lot of places to be able to do what you do. Um, what would it be? So what would you do instead of what you're doing? Yeah, honestly, I'm not sure. There are a lot of things that I like. Um, I suppose, you know, in a more uh, romantic sort of mentality, I like to live like Ernest Hemingway, but yep. with my own style. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe, I don't know, I like to open like a nice hipster cafe and, yeah. you know, make our own sourdough bread and brew yeah. our own beer. I used to brew beer. Oh, yeah. uh, I love that. So yeah. that would be mad. Uh, nice. But uh, honestly, I'd like to do something that contributes um, towards the community and society in general, but make yeah. it fun and enjoyable. Yeah. 
um, it's maybe uh, rather inco incompatible to this last uh, hipster cafe with being a, a, a scientist. <laughs> I stick well, to sports Alan and nutrition. I would come and visit. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> Great. New customers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what's a sport you've always wanted to try, but you've never had an opportunity? Um, again, I'm not sure. I've tried many. Um, I uh, yeah, I've 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 done a lot of competitive sports. You know, I've I've gone through. I'm I'm a black belt in taekwondo. I used oh, to wow. compete in taekwondo. I competed at a national level in in uh, in in road cycling. You know, in yeah. in Norway and so on. So I I I um I went through a whole range of different sports. But I you know I I don't know if um, skydiving. Um, yep. is a sport yep. or ba base jump but I'd love yeah. to try that yeah base jump <laughs> that's hectic. yeah I, I I think the closest sport that I can think of like is ski jump um, uh -huh. but I'd probably break a leg or something at least if I tried <laughs> try something like that did you get like to check that. out the jumps when you're in Norway <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't see them live, but I I saw the ramps, you know, the actual yeah. ski jump, and it, it's it's insane. You go like, wow, that that looks mad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> do you live by any piece of advice or motto? Uh, yeah, I don't think I have a single one. I suppose that I I swing between a Buddhist uh, change is the only constant constant, mm -hmm. and the more stoic uh, memento mori, which is like remember that you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> um is there any other country <laughs> you'd like to live and work in one day considering where you've already been? Um look, I think I've already spent too much time debating myself uh, where I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh so I think um I, uh, to only to find out that you know the only um, uh, the best place to where I could be is to be here and now. Yep. <laughs> yeah, good one. Yeah, answering really well. I like that. Um, what's the next thing you're hoping to do or achieve in, in your career? So, I mean, you, you mentioned um, some work that you're doing with um, Sam and the group with, um, I guess, the, the equations and trying to nut out <clears throat> that aspect. What else are you looking at? Yeah. Uh, so in uh, skeletal muscle glycogen, we are we have a really nice working group at the moment uh, in in our uh, group at LJMU that we're trying to tackle a few different questions on that. Um, so we're really working as a group. There is is really nice. I'm not I'm not leading that. That that's that's the group working on it. My my uh, specific work at at this moment is really looking at the effect of low low energy availability. This is this really is the topic that I'm trying to to drive at the moment. It's mm -hmm. all related to the area of, you know, the male and female or the female and male triad and uh, red S and so on. But it's more looking at the sort of uh, physiological, you know, endocrinological metabolic effects of low energy availability. And I think there's a lot to discover in that in that area. Um, the whole topic of uh, starvation response, I think, is extremely interesting, and how this um, affects the response in, you know, athletes and non-athletes and so on. So this is really an area that I would love to to develop, and we have uh, several lines of of uh, work at the moment going on uh, in that topic. Uh, so I suppose that what I want to achieve um, is really to 
um, you know, drive this uh, area of work, make it grow. But um, more importantly, I want to do it with a, a, a nice people of, of uh, group around. I really want to um, drive working with people that, you know, we like each other in terms mm. of like who we are and generate a, a sort of nice environment and fun. And um, mm. I think I think this is nice because we, you can achieve all these things, but it can be a bit cold at the same yeah. time. And I think at the end of the day, um, we all need this uh, sort of human contact and, and love. <laughs> and yeah. I think this is what I want to generate, like drive uh, good research, uh, a nice, you know, like good research questions in, a, in an environment that is, uh, is, is pleasant and nice for everyone. Yeah. All right. Well, on behalf of both of us, Jose, thanks so much for your time today. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's going to give people some real food for thought in terms of carb loading and, and what it involves. And I know we always have our, our follow-up athlete uh, episodes. Um, so I think Steph and I will talk a bit more about the sort of the practical nuances, um, but you've given us a good overview of that today as well in terms of um, what scenarios might it be useful for and, and just some of the, the challenges that people have to overcome to, to carb load properly. So thanks so much for your time. No, yeah, thank, thank you, guys. You. It's really been a pleasure to be on this podcast. And it, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So uh, I, I wish you all, all the best with the upcoming uh, episodes. And I'm, I'm going to be one of your, your audience for all the episodes, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks awesome. so much. Thank you. There we have it. Jose Areta. Um, great to, to hear from him and, and hear about some of his experiences and obviously what he's been doing in the research space and the implications of that for carbohydrate loading and obviously a man who knows his history well in this area too in terms of the research and as it goes back you know right into the the mid-1960s. Um, so Steph do you want to summarize our session today with with Jose and, and what we've learned and, and answering that question you know do I really need to carb load? Yeah, yep. Um, so I guess with that question, um, as with all research, um, we may not have a complete answer for every sport um, and, and exercise, um, but in some aspects, sometimes we, we may need to um, kind of just um, take the information and maybe translate it. Um, so the, the main messages are with carb loading, it appears that it, it is beneficial for exercise and, and sports that are kind of, you know, moderate to high intensity, I guess, longer than that 90 minute kind of duration um, for, for, for many people. Um, and so it can have a performance benefit. Uh, and, you know, that's been shown in sort of time trial types of, of research. Um, we know that carb, carbohydrate loading can help um, improve endurance capacity. Uh, so although we may not have a, a heap of solid um, research or evidence um, in terms of, you know, how can we translate that to ultra-endurance exercise, um, it, it appears that it may be um, beneficial. Um, so I, th I think with the common message that we've been showing in our podcast is there can always be individual variation and um, to always try these things in, in training and, and then see if it does work for you and, and then if, if you think it does or find it does, then you know implement it in, in your racing and in your events. Uh, and then in terms of, um, you know, again, not a heap of, 
perhaps um, evidence and research from the aspect of um, applying it for female athletes. Like a lot of the the research has been done and comes from male athletes. Um, that's the case, unfortunately, in a, in a lot of sports nutrition, and we're trying to. I know researchers are trying to work in that area and change that, um, but but again, um, there's there's perhaps some research that it that it may be um, beneficial. And then in terms of how well athletes do carb loading when they think they are doing it, uh, they tend not to be actually getting to the levels that we would refer to in terms of what carbohydrate loading is. The quantities are quite high. Um, you know, it could vary from anywhere from, let's say, 8 to 12 grams per kilo of, of body mass. So it, it's quite a, a high amount of carbohydrate and often athletes don't realise um, how to actually do that and achieve that very well um, in terms of from food. Um, so I think they, they're kind of the main messages that, that we, that we, that we um, got from from that and uh yeah anything else i've missed alan yeah i think um with the uh, the practical side of the carb loading like you mentioned before uh, a lot of people don't get nearly that that quantity and part of it is that they don't realize what the quantity is that eight to 12 grams mm. per kilo uh, as jose mentioned as well and part of it is that practical thing in terms of just the volume of food so i mean jose mentioned a few of those little practical strategies in terms of keeping the fat content as low as you can keeping the fiber content as low as you can um, you know needing a little bit less protein because carbohydrate by definition is starch and sugar um, they're going to be the things that make up the majority of what you eat at, at that time um, but again as, as Jose mentioned and, and we talked a bit before in um, previous episode with Dr Tim Crow about why nutrition is so confusing we need to also understand that this is not something that we're expecting people to do on a day in day out basis and if they're having you know um, this huge bucket of carbohydrate on these one or two days before a, a major event um, it's, it's not going to make you sick. It's not going to give you heart disease or diabetes or anything like that. Um, that said, if you know, if you are at high risk of those things, we also wouldn't recommend that you do this either. Um, so, you know, there is that sort of horses for courses aspect to it. Um, but, yeah, it, it's one of those things that, you know, it, it's a temporary thing. Uh, it's only for a short amount of time, and that carbohydrate is going to get used the next day when you, when you go out there and, and do your thing on a race day. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's individual. Depends on your event. Uh, depends on what the the goals are for for the individual. So that's where you know we'd always work with that individual to to work that out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. as Jose mentioned, probably the more elite the athlete is, the, the more emphasis exactly. probably that we'd put on something like this. If you're a yeah a five hour marathon runner who's just aiming to finish, then maybe we wouldn't worry too mm. much about this, or we probably go to the lower end of that that range. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to really pushing it to the, the nth degree. Um, yeah. and, and as we said, for the ultra stuff, whether you need to push it to the nth degree or not, we simply don't know. There's there's no research mm. on that. And and because of the nature of what you would have to do for that, we possibly never will either. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you for that uh, summary, Steph. Let's um, think ahead now to our next episode, which was going to be, episode 9b so do you want to tell us who our athlete is who's going to talk to us about carbohydrate loading 
Yeah, we have um, Karen Hill, uh, who is an athlete that you work with, Alan, yep. uh, a mountain bike rider, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've been working with her for for a while now. Well, this season in particular. So yep. uh, I think that's what's going to be really interesting is to think about uh, and, and ask Karen about what she's done sort of traditionally, and then you know what sort of things we changed up. Uh, for this season specifically, um, which is you know, her mountain bike season's just come to a close. So, yeah, it'll be good to, to hear about what's been happening and, and how it all went. Awesome. Yeah, looking forward to it. Mm. All right. So to finish up with, uh, if anyone has any suggestions, uh, comments, feedback, uh, things that you'd like covered on the podcast, feel free to contact us via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook Instagram or Twitter. We'd love to, to hear from you. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, you can consider leaving a, a rating on Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening to it uh, or any other podcast uh, platforms that allow you to do that. Uh, it's very much appreciated. It helps us uh, spread the, the word about the podcast and uh, and get more people listening to it and, and sharing these ideas and, and interacting with us, which is always uh, the sort of things that we that we really love to do. Um, so yes, next episode uh, 9B will be next week with Karen Hill. So I think that's pretty much it from us for today. So we'll leave everyone to it. Uh, enjoy your week. Uh, and we'll, we'll see everyone back here next week for episode 9B. Awesome. See you then.